Hello, and thank you for joining me again for 2020 Blood, Sweat and Tears. This is the podcast where we talk all things 2020 with a different guest each week. In a year of huge personal change, I'm keen to understand the individual experiences of 2020, the personal, the professional, the upsides, the downsides, and all of the important issues that we've been thinking about. I'm interested in it all, and I hope that you will be too. Our guest this episode is Henry Prophet. Henry is an actor who trained at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. Since graduating, he's worked regularly on both stage and screen, and his credits include the leading roles of Pip in Great Expectations at the York Theatre Royal and Jacob Rubinstein in The Rubinstein Kiss at Southwark Playhouse. His screen roles include feature films The Men of Waterloo and Cassette. He studied politics at Nottingham University before going to drama school, and he's a UK Labour Party member and activist. In this episode, we talk about taking time out to work on your craft, the art of Zoom plays and the impartiality, or not, of the UK media. Thanks so much to Henry for joining me today on 2020 Blood, Sweat and Tears. So in the UK, we spent the vast majority of this year under some kind of restrictions, various lockdowns. How have you been spending that time this year? Obviously, I'm an actor, so... um... When the pandemic happened, the entire acting industry shut down. So I wanted to make sure that I turned the, the, this pandemic, or the lockdowns, into an opportunity. So rather than just, rather than, you know, because it could be quite easily to sort of fall into, you know, kind of depression and whatever, mm. or drinking too much and, and all that kind of thing. So, you know, like any, any kind of professional industry, it's, sometimes you, you feel that you, you can always learn and grow and improve. And you can always be better, be a better artist, be a better actor. In many ways, it was actually a great opportunity because what, what had happened was that all the pressure of getting a job, you know, auditions, all that stuff was taken away. So you were given a chance. And an unusual thing that never really happens unless you're studying was that you were afforded time to actually grow and learn without the pressure of having to achieve anything. And I was able to just go slow right down just to interrogate my own craft as an actor every day. Yeah, yeah so you've given you a bit more time to focus on some things that you wouldn't necessarily have the time or or the just, inclination um, before it, to... Not, I, I mean, I was doing it anyway, but the this gave you the more time to just focus on it because when you're, you know, prior to the pandemic, you know, you, you know you're either... You've got a job, you've got to go and do something, you've got, to go, you've got a job, you've got to go and film something or you've got to rehearse a show... To have the time when you're just actually just focusing on your approach and technique, because you know I trained as an actor. I did that when I was like what twenty one or something, you know. So so you you as a person, as an artist, as an actor, you you change and you grow. And I... You mentioned to me earlier about uh, the theatre going online during the pandemic, and I know you've been involved in some Zoom productions and things like that. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the experience of the plays written for Zoom, or how, how does it work? Yeah, basically, the one good thing about the acting industry is that actors and producers and directors are used to insecurity of work, right? You wouldn't be an actor, you wouldn't have survived as an actor for very long if you couldn't cope with ins and outs and adversity, right? So 
pandemic comes, I think in many ways, acting people involved in the entertainment industry are used to dealing with it, with it and, can, and, and probably well placed to cope with it as best they can. So what happened was quite not too, too long, theatre started going online and, and Zoom became a platform for people to create, you know, create their art, you know, practice their craft. Yeah, so it, I mean, it was quite unusual because we did a, a play called "Someone Who Watched Over Me." It was it's a play set in a in a in a jail in Lebanon about uh, basically it's based on truth where three hostages, um, an American, an Irishman, and an Englishman, are taken hostage in Lebanon by Lebanese terrorists, and it's basically a play about these three blokes in a jail. So, so we had to find a play that works in the construct of Zoom. Find that, and then there was then there was the, the unusual thing of acting on zoom you know there's also like the last one i did you know we i had a technical issue in the first scene in the performance is completely untoward that um we didn't what we did was the last one we didn't learn that we didn't learn the lines because we rehearsed it for two weeks so we had the script on the screen and we're directing a camera but i had happened to have put my script in the wrong percentage of view you know the, the audience can't see it but i'm reading the lines basically and um, i could see the bottom of the page I, i've registered that i can't see the bottom line and so each page, there's like, sometimes there's, you know, a large bit of text and I can't read it. And luckily, because I've done it so much, you, I remember those moments. But I had to, without the audience seeing or breaking any kind of thing, because it would just drop the whole thing and be terrible, I had to change yeah. the percentage on Adobe so I could get the view right. And, and while still being a character and then still, because you change the page, you, 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 end, you unmute, start video, move the cursor, into where the um, the Adobe is, so you can change the page. Yeah, it all while trying to look at the all, camera and be in character yeah. and act. I mean, a lot of industries have been through a tough time this year. You yeah. know, like retail, hospitality, and especially the arts. I think, and I, I can't remember when it was. But yeah, live performance arts for sure. Towards the yeah, live performances. Yeah. Um, towards, I think in the summer there was a big campaign from a lot of um, people working in the arts to to the government. One of the biggest stresses for me actually was prior to the because there was the genuine fear that the theatre industry would not survive. Yeah, that was like that was like a genuine concern, and and the mm. theatre industry in this country is a you know for first it's it's the best in the world. It's one of the things that. Mm we're really good at, but it creates a lot of, there's a lot of money behind it. So, you know, it, so there's a big campaign and I guess it's fortunate for the entertainment industry that there are, you know, famous individuals who can lobby through the, the media, you know, so mm -hmm. people like Sam Mendes, all that lobbying, which was, mm. which was, you know, I'm obviously hugely grateful for that. And I'm hugely grateful. I'm glad that the government did that. I mean, they should have done it anyway. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. But, um, but without that, that money that bailed out the theatres, was, was is fundamental not every theater got it and not every, and, and it's still you know dodgy because you know you know the theater's got different amounts and some theaters didn't get stuff but a lot did and but it was all basically to keep theaters alive until march so you're still mm -hmm. hoping that you know that the things don't go downhill again or there's not you know this the vaccine has an impact because theaters will need to open you know So what's been your um, thoughts and opinions on the, the government's uh, handling of both the, the kind of 
the arts and performing arts and also the pandemic in general this year? Yeah, um, I think that with the arts, the bailout for the theatres, you know, I think that's that's been very welcomed and been very good. And whether it's enough, we don't know. Does it cover every everybody? No. And so the theatre the venues will survive, but the producers that are working, you know, they might have a small production company going from, um, you know, project to project, or you know, if they if they aren't there, then they won't be the people creating the productions in the first place. So, so you you hope that they survive. So that that that's a concern. But you know, we do as an industry have to be grateful for the bailout. But in terms of in terms of the in terms of the pandemic, you kind of like I think a lot of people in, in acting and probably feel conflicted because on the one hand they bailed out the theatres, but on the other hand, you know as, as you know as we can all see that the I mean it, I mean for, as far as I'm concerned it's just uh, failure upon failure. You know I mean we've always been behind the curve. We locked down too slow. We came out too quickly. Okay, so, so for me there is the obvious sort of you know okay. There's the track and trace that hasn't worked. But why is the track and trace not worked? The track and trace not working is not just it's difficult to do. It's solely linked to the fact that we have a Conservative Party who are obsessed with the private sector, who would, were dead set against having, a, um, having local authorities do the track and trace. Now, bearing in mind that the local authorities in this country already had track and trace expertise in place. It already existed. Just to pop a fact check in here, the Local Government Association says that local contact tracing systems have a 97% success rate at finding close contacts and advising them to self-isolate. Between May and December 2020, 84% of close contacts that were entered into the NHS test and trace system were reached. For people reached within 24 hours, that figure dropped to 66%. It was already working. The government actively shut down the public sector track and trace early on, right? Germany have a track and trace that's successful. All their public local authorities are properly funded and they have a, a non-centralised system, not run by private companies, run by local authorities who had the expertise in the first place. But we did, because they have an ad, their, their to, total obsession with the private sector for providing healthcare, um, they gave it to a company, Serco, Cytel, Deloitte, who never set up a track and trace system in their life. They started one from scratch, a centralised system that has been the most important piece of infrastructure since the Second World War, and it has been a complete failure. They, they can't do the contacts. The stories come out of how they're paid, how they're managed, the, the poor training, and it just doesn't work. And we're told this is the most important piece of infrastructure, but it doesn't work at all. And 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 and, and what's interesting is, you know, and it's and it's intended that they don't call it Circo Track and Trace. They don't call it um, Deloitte Track and Trace. They call it NHS Track and Trace because. What happens then is the private companies are covered and, the, and people think it's a public body failing, which serves the Conservative Party, because ultimately the Conservative Party, whilst they say it's our NHS and they love the NHS, the Conservative Party have been against, against the NHS since the beginning it was formed and they really would love to have a proper insurance system or privatised system. For my money, we're here now with the highest death rate in Europe because we've allowed a dangerous authoritarian government who ban journalists who are critical of them from their press briefings, who prorogue parliament, who avoid scrutiny. The reason they had this Christmas U-turn was because they didn't want, they knew they were going to ban Christmas. They lied to us on Wednesday because they, they just didn't want to have parliament scrutinising them. They're totally self-serving. 
But we've our system has allowed this to happen. And until you know, and if you look at countries like Germany, Rupert Murdoch does not have any influence in Europe. These countries don't have this political system we have in the UK and the USA. And 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 you know, until that changes, you know, because the question is, will people in this pandemic realise these things? Will will there be a you know after the Second World War, you know, there was massive social change with the NHS developing the welfare state. Can something like that happen again? I, I don't know. In terms of the the media in this year, in from my view, I think there's been a whole lot of focus on the death rate, the infection rate, infections in your area, the R rate, all these kind of things, which is obviously what, like some of the most viewed website pages of the year are infections in your area. It's what people want to, want to read about. Is it what they want to read about or is it, is it what they want to read about or is it what they're told to read about or influenced to, to find significance? Well, well, exactly. So I feel like there are a lot of things that have, that the media have really allowed to go under the radar this year. You know, the narrative is controlled, right, in my view. Certain, okay, certain basic narratives, right, in a basic simple terms. Donald Trump, terrible. Jeremy Corbyn, anti-Semitic. China, bad. Russia, bad. Joe Biden, good. Conservative Party, not that bad. Keir Starmer, good. You know, these narratives, there are certain narratives that are lockdowns in the, in the, in the larger part of the liberal media, good. You know, why the, the, these narratives occur, they, they, they're to, to do with controlling people's, if you take Russia and China, saying that Russia is bad justifies defence spending for NATO, for, for chemical weapons, right? You know, and saying that Donald Trump and Joe, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is anti-Semitic is saying it's, it's all about ensuring that people don't vote for people who are going to challenge the status quo and challenge the system. You know, in this country, Keir Starmer is as far as we're allowed to think. You know, that's why Jeremy Corbyn was, 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 was um, in my view, destroyed um, by not just about the anti-Semitism thing. Just to pop in with a fact check, Henry refers to accusations of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party, which culminated in the Equality and Human Rights Commission investigation on the topic. Their report was released in October 2020 and found that the Labour Party had committed unlawful acts. Um, in my view, which was weaponised, but actually totally discredited. I mean, the BBC was at London Economics um, study that showed that in 2018, every report on Jeremy Corbyn was negative. Just to jump in here again, there have been a multitude of reports on the topic of Jeremy Corbyn's representation in the British press, including a 2016 LSE report that found Corbyn was thoroughly delegitimised as a political actor from the moment he became a prominent candidate, and even more so after he was elected as party leader. Also in 2016, the independent newspaper calculated that 75% of press coverage about Jeremy Corbyn misrepresented him in some way. It's also worth noting that while it's generally accepted that the print media in the UK tends to be more conservative, UK broadcast media is regulated for impartiality by Ofcom. Now, are you telling me that, that that's, that's an impartial media that doesn't have an agenda? The media does definitely have... It, it does have an agenda. All parts of the media yeah. do, but and it's not necessarily meant to be impartial. I don't think, apart from the BBC, but yeah, all other me- media organisations. Object- objective journalism, right? If you take Assange, right, uh, Julian Assange, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now Julian Assange is a big public figure. He's he's films have been made about that everyone knows who he is. Now he's been in Belmarsh Prison, being treated very badly. He's had not proper access to computers. He's not had proper access to lawyers. He's been treated like a murderer. He's back. The Americans want to 
take him and put him a 175 year prison sentence. There's been mm -hmm. vigils, there's been protests. Pink Floyd have been playing live outside um, at these vigils, and it has not been in the media at all. That's really interesting because I have not heard yeah, about any of it, that. It made the Guardian. It was, there was one article on it last weekend. I think I've read two articles in the in the past year on it, right? And there's people, but there's other people. John Pilger, who's a famous investigative journalist, all the time talking about it. The why why is that not in the news? That's not in the news because the British and UK government are basically treating him totally unlawfully. Just to pop an update and some fact-checking in here, this conversation took place prior to the 4th of January 2021, which is when a UK court ruled that Julian Assange could not be extradited to the US. This has been widely reported in the media. Throughout Assange's imprisonment, there have been sporadic reports from the UK media, including reports from late 2019 and early 2020, that Assange's lawyers did not have proper access to him. The appeals of UN torture expert Nils Meltzer were also reported briefly in the press. He stated... Mr. Assange is not a criminal convict and poses no threat to anyone, so his prolonged solitary confinement in a high-security prison is neither necessary nor proportionate and clearly lacks any legal basis. Excluding the extradition news on the 4th of January, the press around Assange for the majority of 2020 typically did not make headline news. But do you think something like that is part of the, the bigger political system, or is it something that you can blame on being lost in the news this year because there have been so I many. I don't think you can blame on. Julian Assange. When, when, you, when I've got when I've got a Guardian um, app on that's telling me how I can bake mince pies and toast sandwiches and you know I can I can read about everything. There's not room for a story on on on, on Julian Assange. This year, I think, has shone a massive light on the huge inequalities in our country. And people seem to be recognising it more and focusing on it more. But do you think that it will be a long-term long concern of the public, of the electorate? Do you think that people are going to remember 2020 in 2024 when we're voting for yeah. the, in the next general election? I believe that people are well-intentioned. So I believe that humans whoever they are, you know, if there's a starving child on the street, they feel sorry for it. If there's people that have been screwed over, if the NHS workers who are on the front line of this have had a pay freeze when defence spending has gone up 16%, I think people feel annoyed by that. It's very difficult because when we start talking about equality and we start talking about equality issues in this country, we need to have more progressive government and progressive politics. But you're, because of what we've been talking about, you're not allowed to have nationalisation of the energy sector, for example. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to have, you're not allowed to ban private schools. I'm not saying you should, but you're not allowed to really have like enough tax so you can have a proper funded education system. Mm -hmm. Because those policies are, is more progressive, it's more European, it's more Corbynism, you know, that's not really allowed. So I, 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 my, my fear is that because of the influence and control that media has over people that, People themselves will certainly remember him, but I just think that it's very difficult for Keir Starmer to have um, to continue his pledges he made in the Labour Party because I, I just don't know that you can get to power with those pledges. Because if we said Rupert Murdoch has supported every elected prime minister, and and and, and but do you think Rupert so Murdoch I, has I supported every elected prime minister because he always supports the winning side? 
No, he supports the prime minister that he he wants who backs his interests and his views. So you think you think it's causation who Rupert Murdoch supports becomes prime minister rather than he will think this is the person that's that's going to no, win. No, no, yeah, Let's no, get no. behind them. He, he, I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, it's definitely who he, he who he agrees with and who he thinks serves his interests for sure. If you look at the if you look at um, there was a documentary recently on the, the on the Murdochs that was on I think BBC it was very good and was quite scary and illustrated illustrated some of these things. Just to jump in here, the documentary that Henry's referring to is called The Rise of the Murdoch Dynasty and it's available to watch on iPlayer. You know he he thought that Tony Blair that the country wanted something different and Tony Blair was an opportunity for that and that he met with him and and he felt his views aligned and so he he made sure that the son supported him came out and supported him and he made, went into all the he would went physically went to the editorials about I'm going to write this I want to have this mm-hmm. support Tony Blair's government and they got elected yeah. um, you know I, I, unfortunately I think it you know it's as, it's as sort of simple and as crude as, as, as that really Thank you so much to Henry for joining me on 2020 Blood, Sweat and Tears. And thank you for listening. We'll be back again with our final episode of the series next week. Speak to you then.